What to Know podcast explores best practices, innovation, and latest trends with industry experts with an eye toward helping you, the listener, stay ahead of the ever-changing marketing and communications landscape. Good afternoon. This is Aaron Strout, host of the What to Know podcast show and CMO of W2O. And I am joined uh, today in the Sheridan in Sacramento for a second of two podcasts with David Henke, who is the president and CEO of Active Radar. Welcome, David. Thanks, Aaron. Happy to be here. Well, I'm happy to have you here. And just a funny little side story. I almost missed David because uh, I was thinking we were scheduled for the following week. So fortunately, David got in touch with me and uh, here we are. So this is going to be a fun conversation. Uh, David, as I explained in our prep, I do like to find out a little bit about how you got here, right? So uh, we'll get to eventually, you know, what Active Radar is and what you do. Uh, but let's talk a little bit about your journey, you know, coming out of school and into the, the digital health space. Well, it wasn't actually a linear journey. I, I spent my entire career post-college in the healthcare environment. And the environments have ranged everything from pharmaceuticals uh, to uh, healthcare, health plans, consulting, and even to where I'm at today. And that's really uh, how I got here. And this has been a journey of over 35 years to this point. Well, I, and I love the nonlinear journeys. Those sometimes are the best. And I think given the fast pace of you know healthcare and digital health in particular today, um, it is good sometimes to have those different touch points. And it's interesting. I have people that you know come out of the uh, consumer space and you have people like Blake, who I just spoke to, that people have listened to already, who is ex-military and he's an MD working, you know, as an emergency room doctor and founded this company. But let's talk a little bit about Active Radar. So your, your tagline is detect, analyze, reduce. Uh, let's talk about, you know, what the company's mission is. How did you come about joining the company and, you know, all that good stuff. So really, it's a legacy. Active Radar is a legacy of Safeway, the Safeway grocery chain. And it came about because Safeway, as a, as a purchaser, as a plan sponsor, was really trying to find a way to bend the trend of the healthcare spend. And they looked at a variety of different ways of doing it, uh, many of the same uh, tools that a lot of employers are looking at today. Um, including reference pricing, employee wellness, looking at better ways to help manage their healthcare spend. And one of the most successful ways they were able to do this is looking at their pharmacy spend specifically and understanding and realizing that there's a great variety of medications that actually perform the same therapeutic benefit. Um, and they created what is commonly referred to as a reference pricing model for pharmaceuticals for non-specialty pharmaceuticals and this is a unique platform that exists in terms of my knowledge only within um, active radar at this point in time so it, it's a unique way of looking at how to price out a series of care in the most cost-effective way reference pricing is used most frequently uh, on the medical side for medical or surgical procedures or even for imaging where a benchmark price is set that's what the plan sponsor will reimburse for. Uh, a member or a subscriber could go anywhere else they want to, but they just have to pay the difference. And that same concept holds true with commonly and routine used pharmaceutical products. Well, it's a good approach and I love, you know, this is the broader spectrum, but um, I've interviewed Marcus Osborne from Walmart and, you know, certainly we've seen what's happened recently with CVS and Aetna and there does seem to be this convergence of bringing where people are into, um, 
you know, into care. I know this is a slightly different angle, but you mentioned the Safeway connection and the fact that it was through the pharmacies. I guess let's talk a little bit about that and this whole sort of consumerization of healthcare and making it more approachable. I think particularly for people in the middle of the country, you and I are on the coast, right? And I originally come from the East Coast. And I think people forget that sometimes people in the center of the country don't always live even remotely close to a facility, but they might live close to a Walmart or a CVS or something like that. That's a great uh, point. And, and for plan sponsors or for companies that have employees across the country, the one constant in terms of their benefit level is the pharmacy benefit. Um, that's it's really like the peanut butter that can spread across the country. It's the same co-pays, it's the same network, it's the same benefit structure. And in our model, this is a way to help leverage a better way to price out this pharmacy benefit. We set a benchmark price for a commonly used drug. Let's use uh, statins that are used to uh, control cholesterol. Even though the variety of medications used today are generic, there is still an extremely wide price variation for medications that perform the same therapeutic function. And we're able to identify the lowest cost drug in these categories and set that as the benchmark. The consumerism comes in uh, with tri price transparency, both directly to the member and also, most importantly, to the prescribing physician. Because in my experience, most providers have absolutely no idea of the actual cost of the medications they're prescribing. Yeah, and it's, it's tricky. Um, it is interesting along that line. I know that one, Marcus Osborne, when I was talking to him from Walmart, was sort of harping on this idea of bringing medical costs down as low as you can, right? Which, to some people, it's crazy that something that, I'm doing air quotes here, costs two cents or 0.2 cents to manufacture gets sold for, you know, dozens or hundreds of thousands of dollars. But what they also sometimes conveniently forget is that all the research, R&D, the clinical trials. And then I was listening to a podcast with Melinda Richter from J-Labs this morning on Pharma Voice, and she was talking about how sometimes, you know, what you might spend $100 on can prevent you having to go into the hospital and spending thousands or hundreds of thousands of dollars on. So I do like this concept of, you know, looking at it more holistically. Obviously, the transparency is important, and I know the government is pushing hard right now to try to mandate some of this transparency even more. I guess I'd love to get your take on that too, if you're willing to talk about it. Yeah, there's a couple really interesting issues here, and it has to do with, first of all, I think everyone has to realize that there is no government oversight to pharmaceutical pricing in the United States. So that is a given. I don't believe that's going to change in the current administration. There might be some uh, uh, issues around the corner of that, but it's still, it, it's an unregulated industry. We're part of a capitalistic society, and that's just a given. The other part of the equation is that from a plan sponsor for an employer perspective, oftentimes they have between 85 and 88% of their pharmaceutical spend are on generic drugs, thinking that they're doing the best that they can because there really isn't much more room to increase the generic dispensing rate. But the reality is generic drug prices are also going up, not as dramatically as brand name prices. And this is where we find our best delta opportunity to help change uh, the pricing structure for plan sponsors. About 45% of our recommended switches uh, in our program are actually from a high cost generic to a lower cost generic uh, alternative that has the same therapeutic effect. And in this way, we're saving between 25 and 28% of the overall plan spend by just looking at ways to help better manage drug choice 
uh, and drug options for the members. How much does technology come into a play uh, in your situation and, and sort of figuring this out? I'm guessing there's some machine learning and AI that is you know built into the model, and I know you don't want to give away your secret sauce, but maybe you could talk a little bit more about that. Yeah, it's an extremely robust platform that allows us to do this process. And I think the secret sauce that we're able to bring to the equation is that not only are we looking at therapeutic substitution at a drug dose level, but we're able to do so in a way that integrates within the claim adjudication system of the PBM or the pharmacy benefit manager so that the benefit actually shows up at the point of sale, whether you're at the CVS, Rite Aid, or Walgreens, uh, the pharmacist or the pharmacy technician sees what the benefit is and actually gives the member a choice. Either you could um, call your doctor and uh, switch to ask your doctor to switch to the lower cost therapeutic equivalent drug, or you have the option of paying the difference. Um, it's not a hard edit, it's an option. And we like to use the analogy is uh, you're buying an airline ticket, you're buying a coach ticket. If you like to bump up to first class, typically, if you're traveling on business, you have to pay that out of pocket. And really, it's the same type of concept uh, that we like to bring to the market. Well, it's a good analog. And I think giving people that choice does feel better than mandating it or, or worse, making them pay you know, the more expensive price and not having that other option. Uh, obviously, I'm going to shift a little bit, but as president and CEO, you do a lot of things that other leaders would do. But given the nature of where you sit and what you do, talk a little bit about what the, a day in a life looks like for you. Well, I think first and foremost, it's all about executing the strategy that we have for our, our organization across uh, across all different di divisions. Um, you know, we have uh, a clinical division, we have operations, we have HR, we have finance, everything else. And so making sure that the, the entire company is kind of on board with the vision and the strategy of what we do. The other really important part of what we do is that we are a disruptor in the PBM world. We do things that PBMs could do themselves, but don't do because it's not traditionally in their best interest to provide the lowest cost therapeutically equivalent medication on their formulary. Now these medications are on their formulary, but there's nothing to drive people to these lower cost drugs. And this is a way not only to help control costs, but actually to uh, provide better care outcomes as well because anecdotally, we're finding out that our program increases medication adherence for people taking medications on a long-term or chronic basis. So better outcomes, uh, better price, uh, disrupting the market in a way that provides better outcomes. All good things, I think. Um, one of the things that I would love to talk a little more about is uh, future of healthcare. And the beauty of doing this podcast where I talk a lot to a lot of smart leaders, physicians, uh, influencers in the space is getting their different takes on where we're going. So I didn't prep you for this, so we'll, we'll caveat that up front, but I'm guessing you probably had some thoughts on this. Looking out over the next five to 10 years, um, what one or two big things do you see changing in the healthcare space? I think the, the biggest changes that are going to occur are that there isn't going to be any significant change in five years. Uh, maybe 10 years out, we could look at something a little bit more dramatic. But what I'm seeing or what I would predict is that people are going to be nibbling around at the edges. The overall healthcare delivery system uh, the chain of supply system is so integrated and so deeply confusing that um, that there isn't going to be any one or two significant things that happen within five years. It's just not 
It's just not operationally uh, uh, going to happen. I think that there are going to be additional technologies, uh, additional services that are going to be able to uh, create additional value. But I think that the, the smart plan sponsor or the good student uh, will look at taking advantage of one or two of these little nuggets of information and integrating them into their uh, care delivery systems, number one, or their benefit offerings, number two. Well, I love that answer and I love the authenticity because I think obviously it does feel like with everything moving so quickly with you know Uber and Lyft getting into the health space and telemedicine and AI and everything that it is changing so rapidly, but for all intents and purposes in an industry that has taken a long time to develop, it will probably be longer than five years before we start to see meaningful changes. I will ask a follow-on question to that, and this is a little more theoretical. Um, you're Dr. Seuss and you run the zoo and you have one wish to sort of magically change the healthcare system tomorrow what would you do to wave your wand and what would that outcome look like? I think a couple things. First of all, eliminate waste, uh, reduce uh, redundancy, uh, uh, and also to, to integrate best practices uh, all across the spectrum. Um, those three things alone uh, could help improve the outcomes and, and make healthcare more efficient across the spectrum. There is so much waste. There is so much duplication of services. There, there are so many uh, providers that are not uh, recognizing best practices in terms of uh, their care management. And so those three things alone, which, which are not unsubstantial, uh, could help overall improve the healthcare delivery in the United States. Well, I like that. Those are uh, good, solid solutions. Let me ask you one more um, related to our conversation, which is obviously more data is better in terms of helping to solve problems like drug pricing, diagnosing, you know, avoiding some of the waste. At the same time, the data has to sit somewhere, someone has to aggregate it, um, someone has to gatekeep it. How, you know, how do we solve this conundrum? Like, you know, what are your thoughts on how we make sure that we have as much data, like companies like yours have as much data as possible, and you do have a lot, right, uh, without jeopardizing and making people feel like they're in control of their data, and maybe that's part of the solution. That's a that's a great question, and I think that the amount of data that's being compiled right now is equivalent to an F1 Ferrari race car. The problem is there's so much data now that's being aggregated that nobody knows how to drive this race car effectively yet. And I think that's going to be the next step on, on how we analyze and utilize and use these tools that you've discussed, AI, blockchain, uh, and, uh, and, and, and other tools to really get to the root of where we're going to be able to drive some effective change management. I don't think we're quite there yet. I don't think we've learned to drive this, this F1 Ferrari, uh, but I do believe that that's going to be the way healthcare is going to transform. Well, that's a great analogy, and uh, it will be nice when someday someone does know how to drive that and we can race it around and, uh, and leverage it to its fullest. This is the point, unfortunately, these are the questions that uh, you did get in advance, so you've been able to prep for them. Um, they're more of the personal nature, and so the first I always like to ask guests is, tell us something about yourself that people may not know that you're willing to share. Well, um, I, I don't disclose this too often, but uh, in a former life, um, I was a Jungle Cruise skipper at Disneyland. 
Um, growing up in Southern California, I think it's almost mandatory that you get a job at Disneyland. It's, it's one of the rites of passages. And I was fortunate enough while I was in college to be a skipper on the world famous uh, Jungle Cruise for a couple summers. That's one of the most awesome uh, little, you know, fun facts that I've heard from someone. And I'd argue, and maybe you disagree, but I remember waiting tables and bartending back in my early, early days, like right during college and right out of college. I learned some of my most essential skills, I guess, people skills. And I'm going to guess that you probably did some of that in doing your Disney experience back then. Absolutely. And it's, it's a job that uh, you are actually giving a eight and a half minute performance for 40 people, you know, 30 times a day. Um, and, and to understand the, the role in terms of public speaking, in terms of confidence, in terms of uh, your time management, um, all those, all those uh, skills were actually part of the Disney experience, as well as kind of providing the Disney guest experience as well, which is part of the training process. And it's also an opportunity as, as a young person that Disney really made an effort to show their employees that that um, when you're working people are on vacation but when you're not working they also provided opportunities for you to socialize and to you know have a good time as well so it, it was a great experience and I, I truly uh, appreciated it. Well, that's awesome um, and they are a pretty well-run company so uh, everyone could benefit from that type of experience. Second question I like to ask is you know whether it's filling up your podcast library or your physical library any books or podcasts that you've been listening to or that really have sort of spoken to you over the last 5, 10, 20 years? Well, well just most recently, I guess, a couple books that I've recently had the opportunity to enjoy. Um, Yurval Harate is uh, Sapiens, A Brief History of Mankind. Extraordinarily uh, uh, impactful and kind of eye-opening book on where mankind's uh, evolution has kind of uh, taken us. And so I'd, I would highly recommend that as it's not, a, it's not a quick read, but it's a very interesting book. The other one is a little bit more closer to home, uh, being Bay Area centric, um, is the book by John Carreyou, uh, Bad Blood, um, uh, regarding the Theranos uh, situation. Again, um, closer to home, I know some of the players involved in that uh, story, um, very well written and extraordinarily well researched uh, book. Have you seen either of the uh, documentaries that have come out yet based on the I have. Book? I have. and it, Thumbs and up, thumbs down? Definitely thumbs up. Oh, good. Well, I'd like to check them out. Uh, and interesting, just a side note to Sapiens, I think you're the third person out of 110 that have recommended. But that said, this is actually a compliment to you in the book. I, don't, I haven't had many repeats among books, so to me that says that's a book I absolutely have to read and probably the listeners should because it's had that much of an impact on some of the folks that I've interviewed. So I'm glad that you brought that up as, a, as one that you recommend. Last question. This is always the one that people seem to have the toughest time coming to the decision on, but uh, proverbial, you're on a deserted island. You could take one album with you, ideally not a Greatest Hits, but if you choose Greatest Hits, I'll let you. Um, what would that be and why? Bruce Springsteen, Darkness on the Edge of Town. Um, there's no question about it. It, it, it came out at, a, at a, uh, a great time in my life, in my life's journey, and it's something that uh, I've, I've been a Springsteen fan for, for years and years and years. But uh, in terms of his mid-early work um, and the songs that are on that album, it, it, it's one that that. I could listen to over and over again if I was stuck on the proverbial uh, deserted island. Well, it's a great choice, and uh, it's hard to go wrong with Bruce and really the guy that's got so much soul. And I think early days, you know, that's one of his uh, 
one of his most authentic albums, not that any of them haven't been. But um, this is Aaron Strout, CMO of W2O, host of the What to Know podcast. I just spent the last 20 minutes with David Henke, who is the president and CEO of Active Radar. David, thank you so much for taking time and being so authentic with us today. Thanks, Aaron. Appreciate it. Want more episodes of What to Know? We post a new episode every Thursday. Subscribe on iTunes, the podcast app, the Stitcher app, or Spotify, and view the podcast page at w2ogroup.com slash what to know.